Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Alien vs. Predator Galaxy podcast, the original Alien and Predator podcast. This regular host, Aaron Percival, a.k.a. Corporal Hicks, and joining me, as always, is my partner in crime, Adam Zeller, a.k.a. Ridgetop. Although I suppose we should go with, like, um, hunting partner or something like that for this one. For episode 153, I think that's what number one. We've got a lot recorded, and I've tried to figure out which way around things are being released here. I believe this is episode 153. Yeah, there's, there's a number we've done, like, I don't know if we've done this many podcasts in this short of time for a while. It's felt like a lot. Maybe Covenant. I think Covenant was maybe the last time we really did this many in a short span of time. But this one's a big one, Adam, isn't it? What the hell is this one? So we were lucky enough to be joined by the director of Prey himself, Mr. Dan Trachtenberg. And it was a great discussion. It was like, what, we went for two hours? About an hour and 40 in the edit. Leaning on the two hour side. But it was, I thought it was a great discussion. There's a few things that we hadn't heard before about it. Yeah. How did you like it, Aaron? That's good. This is the period I enjoy about film releases is the diving into things. And fortunately, we're, we're at this point now where we don't have to wait for things like somebody like Rinsler to come along and, and make these books for us. We're at a point where we can go and talk to these people if they're into the fandom, I suppose, as much. And we can, we can do our own sort of behind the scenes, our own making of things. And, that, and that's how I like to treat these interviews that we get to do with the, the directors, the writers, the actors and stuff like that. It's, it's an oral, our oral history of the making of these films and it was a pleasure to be joined by dan because he really did just open the book on his experience making the film and developing you could tell he's a fan of the franchise as well and i think that's one of the reasons why this movie did as well as it did Mm -hmm. because you could feel that you 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 could feel the the love for the original and he he did have some fun with us as well for some of our opinions which was which was entertaining so anyway hopefully what you're about to listen to you enjoy So one of our traditions on the show, especially when we talk to people such as yourself who shape the franchises we spend so many hours talking about, is to ask about the first time you encountered our favorite extraterrestrials. I know you've talked about this a little in the press rounds for Prey, but could you tell our audience about your first time seeing Predator? Yeah, there's sort of two benchmark moments for me. One was being, I think I've been saying third grade, but doing the math that's first grade when Predator came out. And I was on my way to a karate tournament and was not allowed to see Predator because it was an R-rated movie. But all the sixth graders that I was in like the carpool with had seen it. So we spent the entire ride. They spent like detailing the entire movie to me. And I had distinctly remembered them describing a scene where Billy, the Native American tracker, fought the Predator on a bridge over a waterfall. And then, of course, later when I saw the movie, that scene is not in it. And so that was very much like the germ of the idea for this. And I I will say, too, like I remember when I eventually did see Predator, it was with a buddy of mine who we had this tradition of when we finally... We would rent a movie and then get the Mad Magazine that had the parody for that movie. And we would watch, we would like watch a long pause and then read the parody up until that point of the plot. 
and then watch more, then pause, and then read the parody. I remember doing that with Crocodile Dundee 2, and I really feel like I did that with Predator as well. So yeah, it made, it made an everlasting impression. It, it was like, you know, because the, the thing with Predator is not just, it wasn't like a horror movie that we were afraid to see. It was like a cool movie that had cool action in it and gore and things that prepubescent to teenage boys <laughs> in particular are thrilled to see, especially when it's when you're not permitted to legally or parentally so so yeah that was my first brush how long between those carpools i don't know it may have been between first and third grade or it may have been between third and fifth graders you know i i definitely saw predator before i left elementary school so it wasn't like i was like in college when i you know because especially mad magazine and my timeline sync up in a certain way uh, so i was still young you know i was still like certainly one of the first r-rated movies i had seen for sure did you really follow? I'm going to assume you did. You're a fan of cinema. And you've, you've made prey with following the other films and stuff like that. What what's the general opinion? Yeah, I think Predator Two. I remember trying to also at a friend's house. I believe it was like scrambled on a channel, <laughs> and we would listen to it. You know, I remember being very excited to see it, and uh, I never flipped for it. I, I like Predator Two revisiting it you know there's great a the score is great mm-hmm. i'm a stephen hopkins fan in general so funny i i loved judgment night judgment night was one of my favorite movies growing up and when i revisited predator 2 i was like this is the score to judgment Night." like they did they kind of cribbed from their own own material there but in a great way though i love that score i love his filmmaking and i loved like this transition we look you know between when the guy's screaming and then it cuts to the close of him screaming and it's revealed that we were, were in a cut and he had already decapitated him you know there's a spiritual connection to that concept to and pray when the shield comes out and then it cuts in the tree leaves and you don't see the actual decapitation but you definitely get the implication of it um that certainly has its link to that to that cut in predator 2 I really enjoyed Predators when it came out. I, I think all of them after the first, the first one is a, is a terrific movie. And then all of them afterwards, I don't think were on the whole great movies, but all had cool parts. AVPs include, you know, they all have like that cool, that bit was super cool. So yeah, even, even, you know, last one that had probably the most mixed reaction to, I think there's super awesome stuff in it. And speaking on the the actual predators themselves in these movies, other than the very original and yours, the feral predator, which of the predators from the other films, including the AVPs, would you say is your favorite iteration of the creature? I don't want to alienate myself from... I know there's a very common feeling, especially on your site and in general in the community, that everyone loves the wolf predator. I don't have that affection for that. I think... It's all cool, but nothing nothing is as cool as the first one. And to further alienate myself, it's return in The Predator. There's one moment in that when it first wakes up from the lab and then it nonchalantly slaps, slices, not with its weapon, not with its claw, just with it, its finger claw. It's such a badass move. It's like, you know, it's a second, but it's super cool. And that recapturing that feeling was was a big inspiration for how we handled his physicality in, in Prey. But also, you know, part of my interest in changing things up a little bit is because I never really did fall in love with the iterations in, in the later movies. I think I'd always preferred what was in, in the original, The Jungle Hunter. And, and even then, I thought there's some 80s-ishness. 
it's a product of its time in some ways and, and wanted to iterate on that. I know not everyone fell in love with all of its looks, Aaron, you included, but everyone's got their own. Every, some people like chocolate, some people like vanilla, some people like sprinkles on their, you know, everyone's got their own kicks. So I, I'm stoked on what we did, but yeah. Again, I'll reiterate with this mask on, I think. No, I know. I know. <laughs> yeah, I've honestly really warmed. I mean, it was a bit like it was jarring at first, but I've honestly really warmed to it. I, I really like how he looks on mask personally. I will give you that. I too, I will admit it is not a hundred percent. It could have taken a little bit more love. And I think time you know, was of the essence. And I think if we had a little bit more time with it, it could have won a few more people over in its unmasked look. But even that said, I, I think I, I think you will admit, Aaron, that it, that it does still feel like Predator. You know, it still feels related, though very quite different, which is what I'm sort of most relieved, you know, that we were able to find something that could be a surprising look. Maybe some of the surprise was, ah, I don't want to see that. <laughs> But to others, you know, it, it could function as I, I know you guys have heard me say before, but function the way that that first movie did. All the others were sort of waiting to see it look exactly how we remembered it. And that's not our experience of that first movie. Our experience of that first movie was surprise upon surprise upon surprise. So that was that was the attempt here. Which, to be fair, is often spoiled for us in the marketing. And they actually did a pretty good job of, of keeping Feral's yeah. stages pretty well hidden. We tried. We tried. You know, it's re- it was it was challenging to show enough to get people excited, but to to still keep things at bay and fully aware that the images would be captured and the brightness would be cranked up and all those things. But I think a lot of people after the first trailer, because the bone, the mask was an unknown. So there's a lot of like, wow, its head is really big. Like people didn't first realize that that bone mask was not just face. It was another thing, another mask. So anyway, um, yeah, we tried. You know, obviously we understand that Prey was very much a passion project for you. I think out of everybody other than the original, you're the only one that's gone, guys, I've got this idea. Let me make this film. And so, you know, in, in it being something you've pitched to them and it being your passion project. You know, I'm really curious as to how those sort of early days and early experiences of pitching it to Fox or would it have been Davis you pitched to? It was Fox. Yeah, it was was 20th. So what were those early discussions like, you know, um, going in there with this thing that you wanted to do and it wasn't them coming to you going, we've got this idea from a dude, do you want to do it, you know? Yeah, it was very, very far from an open assignment. Because they were amidst already making a Predator movie that was sure to be giant with an awesome filmmaker, you know. So that that's a part of why this is called Prey was because I, I knew they were already... It was either they were prepping or they were shooting the 2018 movie. And my reps were like, don't waste your time pitching because they're making a movie, you know. But I just, I fell in love with that. I felt like, no, this is great. And this is a great movie to happen now for so many reasons. And I just couldn't uh, be patient. So I thought maybe if we call it Prey and part of the pitch to them, I just went back and looked at my, it was an email to one of the execs that I'd had good meetings with. And I said, I know you guys are in the middle of making this thing, but wouldn't it be cool if just like they're doing with Star Wars, and I don't remember, I mean, someone can look up in 2018 where we were, had Solo come out yet or what, you know, they're doing the main franchise, which surely the Shane thing will, will, will be, but then they're doing these other stories in different time chronological moments of Star Wars history. So what if the same thing is, happens here is that while you guys are making that, we make this and this can be made for a price and can feed into whatever you guys are doing. And, uh, you know, 
it was all a way of, of just getting them to say, yes, we'll make this movie without waiting for this one to come out and da, 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 you know, ironic to what actually happened. So it went over quite well. I mean, they, the guy I wrote to loved it, brought it right to the top. They loved it. They asked what writer I would want. Like it, it was a, a very smooth process, which I, I attribute to the purity of the story. It's very elemental. I've been involved in projects that are very complicated to articulate, which for me is exciting. Sometimes when something's easy to pitch, it's because there's pre-existing reference and, and everyone can see it immediately because it's maybe a little bit redundant. And this had this great element to it where the story was so pure and mythological, just in terms of Nadu's story, the journey she would be on, and the way it connects to the franchise the code of the Yaucha. You know, the, there was a moment just to jump ahead. It went away because of the merger. And then it got really close to the 2018 movie coming out. And they said, well, let's just wait and see how this does. And so my reps, once again, were like, you know, this is this is such a great script. Everyone loved it. Maybe there's a way to like make it not a predator so you can take it somewhere else and make it, you know. And I just was so reluctant because it being Predator makes the movie better. It's not like it's it's a cool movie and then here's the, the and the alien is the thing from the franchise. You know, it's like, no, no, no. It's the themes of the movie become so much more powerful because it is the Predator monster specifically. So I just waited and worked on other things. And then thankfully, after the merger and the dust had settled, some of the folks over 20th um, looked at what they had and then showed it to Disney and they loved it. And we were off to the races. So that's your pitching in 2017-ish? It was 2017. Yeah, it was. It was I, I wrote the email in February of 2017. And then it you shoot in May, June last year, 2021? I think it may have been 2020 because it was... I will tell you, I will look at my photos and see when I was in, okay, we wrapped 2020. Here's my, here's the end of shooting is 2021. So I guess it was 20. Yeah. It would have, it was 2021. Yeah. Okay. So, so May, May, June time last year then. May 2021. Yep. So (laughs) it's four years. That's, you know, a good chunk of time. Yeah. How significantly do you think the project changed from, you know, that period? I I remember you mentioned of a good few drafts with, um, it was Patrick, wasn't it? Patrick Ayson? Mm-hmm. No abnormal amount of drafts of a, of a screenplay for a movie. The biggest change I will admit to you guys came from my pitch to the very first draft of the script that I pitched them something. And then in talking it over with Patrick, when we first met, I realized, oh no. The pitch that I wrote to them was that it would be a younger predator, okay. a younger Yacha, and Nadu and it would team up against fur trappers. And I quickly realized, I think even before I met Patrick, I was like, wait, before we get started, you know, that the fun of the movie is David versus Goliath. By the way, I'm sure in that there would have been a, it's the antagonist that then becomes a protagonist or whatever I was thinking of. But I didn't want to make it weaker. And that carries through even to the final iteration of, in the final fight, you know, in the final fight in, in the 87 movie, in the original movie, the Predator disarms itself and evens the playing field for Arnold, which it certainly has, it does good in establishing the code of it and all that. But it also gives Arnold a fighting chance. And I was really anxious to take these two adversaries. And if we're going to see someone defeat it, like, can she level the playing field for herself? You know, it's all an exercise. I don't know about you guys, but I, I feel like Nadu more than I feel like Arnold Schwarzenegger in life. <laughs> yeah. well, it, I mean, it's one of the things I said in my review as well. You know, Nauru's 
journey is something everybody surely must have identified with at some point this desire to prove yourself to flip the bird to whoever's telling you no you can't do it it is it is just pure and universal identifiability yes absolutely and so you know making something like this is like an exercise in like could i do it you know and and life doesn't often level the playing field for you so i i thought that, i just thought that was the exciting thing was taking on this premise so that's when child went away and team up went away and was like no 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 the, the fun is can she do it i think that was something people sort of theorized slash feared was a team up against the um totally totally no i'm glad that it's always a very divisive thing the team ups in in fandom i mean you typically see them more with avp than the predator but then i mean to be fair you know predators sure it's a minor thing there's a a team up the predator is entirely well depending on which script you're reading is entirely the predators coming to help humanity so you know that's why you know that's probably why i went i moved away from it but also it's like it sounded poetic when i pitched it but then in thinking about what i wanted to see in the movie so to be clear there was never a draft that included that nothing was (laughs) ever written but so that was really the biggest change and then as we honed in on the specifics to the comanche and had all our collaborators there obviously things got more and more authentic and and then classic things as you make a movie. And I think it just all became much... There was some more inner politic of the band articulated. And all that moved away to really focus much more on Nadu and her experience and her and her family. And the way she... Her, her and her brother and, and her mom and all that stuff. That's that. Those are the main points. Oh, I will say another thing too. The initial version of script and even what we shot was more of, frankly, confusing where she was tracking the predator and the predator was tracking her. There was like this weird circle happening that was very hard to follow. And the times we would cut away to the predator, which is really, this is really like the only real fun deleted thing was you saw him actually the shot of the ship dropping him off and he rises into frame. So that was the end of a, of an, a sequence that was shot for a different purpose where he was on that Mesa top and took off his backpack and started setting up his weapons. So we got to see the netball, the cut clamp, the cross, like before we know how they would be used or what they would even do was this little teaser of like, Oh shit. And it was really fun in our first cuts of the movie where we had temp score and all of our temp for Nadu was of one flavor. And, and then whenever we would cut to the predator, we would use music from Predator, you know, and was like, that movie is coming for you, you know, it was really fun. And some of that's still in the score. That's why there is, you know, Sarah's riff on the Predator theme is still sort of in oh, the... She hid that oh, yeah. so that well. The score was so great. Yeah, so I well. agree. I love it. But so then we realized what we're not doing in this movie is what the original did. And we wanted the movie to be great for even people who've never seen a Predator movie before, obviously. So we needed to reestablish the identity of the Predator and its code. So then we realized, oh, we need to see it looking for... And there, there was original drafts that had things that we couldn't afford that once the movie started working, we realized we need them back in. With It's studying the you know mouse, ant, snake, or the opposite of that and the wolf and all the, all those things that that all came back so that way we're on this like they're on this parallel journey that then collides as opposed to the weird circular thing so that that was one of the biggest changes as we made the movie that actually sort of speaks to the next yeah. question doesn't um, one of the many elements that makes prey unique amongst the other predator films is that it was very deliberately intended to be the feral predator's first hunt on earth uh, something marketing caused some confusion with yeah. Uh, so we were curious as to why you decided to go down that route. Was it deliberate mirror to Naru learning to become a warrior? 
Yeah, and and also to understand, like, that's the fun of the thing that the original didn't spend time on, but, like, it's studying, it's, look, the theme of the movie, that the movie wants you to think about what strength really is. And the Predator is something that's coming here looking for the Alpha, and it's not her. You know, her band does not consider it to be her. She sometimes doubts that she could be it. And the Predator is not... The fun of it for me was it's coming here looking for the alpha, which is not quite articulated in the original. And I think it's why we needed to say it's its first time here. If it knows that humans are the alpha on this planet or what, or what kind of human is, and it's just here to take it out, then the movie wouldn't be able to tell the story. But it being this creature's first time here, we're able to investigate that theme a little bit better. So something that just came to me now, actually, um, on that sort of topic is... You know, through a lot of the middle of the film, I guess, you know, Feral is actively pursuing uh, Naru. He is chasing her. There becomes a point where she then becomes convinced that he's not interested in her. Is it when she gets trapped? Is that what that sequence is signifying to Feral? She gets caught in the bear trap. Because I, I sort of read that as a, ooh, interesting, technology is getting more sophisticated here. But then is that her weakness then making him not interested anymore? Yeah, I mean, I think the whole time he hasn't, he was curious, but she was never the target. And then that's the moment where maybe she's the target and he's chasing after her. And then she's caught in a trap. So not only is she not pointing a gun at it, and you know, but also like, oh, she's not, she's no threat to me. Clearly, this is not the alpha of this planet that I need to take care of. So is that is that what you're... Yes, yeah. I, I hadn't really considered that moment as being that until you were just talking then, so... Because that's when she realized, you know, because later when she's on the tree, she's like, it came up to me and then didn't want to... Maybe that was dialogue that we cut from the movie, but, but you know... No, that, no, it's, yeah. it's in there. Oh, yeah. it's there, okay, yeah. I, I just read that scene differently was all... Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, even after it, it like takes out that initial hunting party, it's like really coming after her slowly, like it's curious. And then I think the scene right after her, well, right when her brother's killed and then she's pointing the gun at it and it approaches her, it's like, well, come on then, kind of. Like, is that what you were going with with that? Then it's pointing a gun at her and it's like, okay. But thankfully, Tabe interjects and gives her gives her a chance to, to regroup. That's a part of why she needs to take the flowers because now she, now she is a target. Now if the predator saw her, she would be she has pointed a gun at him. Dan, you are the master at just leading us into things because my next question <laughs> is on the flower. <laughs> so that is something I really, really enjoyed about Prey, you know, was this use of the orange tuts here. I, th I think it'd be fair to say that a lot of us were expecting the mud pit, you know, that we saw in the trailers to factor into her understanding of, of how to camouflage properly from, from the Predator, but it subverted it so well. And, I, and you know, that moment leading up to it, I was like, oh, damn, yep, I see what he's doing. And like the mud, you know, it has a basis in reality, but it's very exaggerated, but it's very on brand with the story you were telling, the people you were telling it with. Where did that come from? Did you know about that kind of thing going going into the pitch, or was that something that you discovered with Patrick? Yeah, it was with absolutely with Patrick, a very organic process of the initial thought. She's going to get mud on her. Of course, she's going to figure out a way. to. Do. And then I think we felt like, God, what a laborious thing to have to watch her figure out what we already know. I mean, that's never interesting. You know, like we're just waiting for her to figure out the thing. That's always a problem with sequels is Indeed. the characters Indeed. catching up with the audience. Yeah. So didn't want to do that. 
and then thought there must be another way for her to lower her body temperature and, you know, to take some liberty. And I don't know if there really would have been a, but there may have been, there very well may have been a flower that, that did this. There is. It was, it was used for medicine to lower body temperature. Some flowers were, yeah, I, I had a look into it. So uh, not quite to that extent. Great. We assumed that something like this would be a thing. And the bi- the biggest thing for me was that it's the thing that her mom is saying you should do. This is a useful thing. And she's in the beginning of the movie going, no, thank you. And in the end of the movie, the thing that saves her butt and the thing that makes her stronger than anyone is embracing what her mom was giving. And the movie is certainly not saying what the men do and, and being able to fight and hunt is not useful. You need to just, no, it's that she has to do all of it because that's, that's how we are able to overcome. It's not about like, you don't have to be good at X. You just, it's like, no, you got to be good at that. It's make for me making movies. It's like, you can't just have good cinematography and then, and then the acting can be bad or whatever. No, no, no. All of it has to be great. And if you have a shortcoming, you can't say, well, I'll just do this really. No, you have to embrace all things. And so I just loved telling the story that it's not like the girl learns how to be a man and fight like a man. No, she has to show up. She's got to fight. She gets into, you know, she gets into it with the predator physically. But the thing that puts her over the edge is the thing that her mom was was trying to get her to embrace. And she was moving away from in the beginning of the movie. So that's what I love, that that, that all comes together in the form of that flower. And then, of course, I honestly, I don't think that the mud pit came I think initially from wanting to be in rather than the action movie vocabulary of the original, wanting to be more in adventure movie vocabulary and wanting to have a quicksand style moment. But this terrain obviously is not sand. And so Patrick discovered this thing that could happen with mud. And then it was like mud. And then it was, of course, really enjoying the idea of her being covered with mud. And the next scene, she's washing it off so that everyone, when they see the mud, is like, okay, I got you, movie. I see where we're going. Here comes (laughs) the predator. And And then no, that's not what happens. That was a great subversion of expectations that the cool. bit, yeah. Cool. And to be fair, you know, the whole idea of her using her other, it's a flip around of Predator, which I love. You know, Predator's about going back to where she begins, where she's using her intelligence and her knowledge and the Predator's superior technology to take it out. So it's just an entire flip around of the way Predator works of going back to basics and relying on pure instinct and pure luck. Indeed. And let's talk about that flintlock pistol, that sequel bait left by Predator 2. It went unexplored by the films, but it was used in the comic Predator 1718. As we understand it, it wasn't part of your original vision for Prey, but was something that came about once you locked the time frame in. They were talking about milliseconds, you know, a difference. It was like, I thought of the movie and... So I think it was in my initial email pitch, but it was just as I was thinking of the movie and I'm figuring out well, what, when my interest was to go back as far as possible so that when we're spending time with Native Americans, it's as far away from a Western as one could be, that it's, it's not where we're, when we're used to seeing that. And then I thought of the pistol and was like, oh shit, there's our date. You know, like that's when we must be. And thankfully history lined up with the things we wanted to do in the movie and, and that worked. Yeah. It's just a really interesting thing because most of the Predator sequels, they'll call back the first one directly. I know the Predator referenced Predator 2 briefly, but this one had a very direct reference to Predator 2, a movie that is very different in a lot of ways to Prey, both, you know, tonally and subject matter. So it's just an interesting inclusion, I thought. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that that's probably for me one of the best parts of Predator Two is that moment at the end. That's just it's a real like oh crap moment, a great movie moment, and so it certainly left a mark. I thought mo- most people remembered that gun, and it turns out many don't remember that. There was a lot of as we were showing friends and family, like mm, you don't really need that moment with gun thing at the end. Like, what is it? You know. <laughs> But the interesting thing is, as soon as we would explain it, they'd be like, oh, you can't lose that. You got to keep that. You can't lose, you know what I mean? Even though they didn't personally remember it, just the like concept of how that connects was undeniably great. So yeah, I know what you mean that it's not, this movie is is linked more tonally and spiritually with the original, but you can't help but deny the cool of, of the gun. That's one of those things the movie does so well, I think, is just I've noticed it's very pleasing to both hardcore fans and wider audiences, which is a really difficult thing to do, right? I mean, how many times have movies tried to appeal to a wider wider audience and just failed with the fans? But that's something I've noticed as a real strength of this film. Thank you. So at what point did you learn about the comic then? Not for a bit, to be fair, and being totally candid. By the way, I, I loved Predator, and I read a lot of the Dark Horse comics. I would read the Aliens comics and Predator comics. I had a lot of the team of, like, I think I had Predator versus, you guys can correct me if this if I'm, if I'm lying or not, but Predator versus Judge Dredd, yeah, yeah, Predator versus Batman, yep. and I feel like, was there a Wolverine team up as well, or no? I don't think so. Maybe okay. there will be now, because of Marvel taking over the... Yeah. I think I had Wolverine and Punisher. Punisher was my favorite comic growing up as a kid. There was a uh, there was a little fan film of Wolverine versus Predator, which was oh really? It was Kevin Peter Hall's nephew inside yeah. oh the gosh. suit. Um, it, I think it was the show. I'll send I'll send you a link to it when we're I'm done tracking it down. So I loved those comics, but I, I wasn't like I devoured every comic and was aware of everything. I was not aware of Primal as well, which is yeah. But I just felt like maybe one day someone will make the awesome pirate Predator movie and like i don't i know how people feel about canon because i have it with star wars i have like oh i i really like some of the outside and what was in the games and things that aren't in you know it's like oh and now when they said that that went away it's like i know the feeling of like ugh, even though it still exists something about it not being official there's a little bit of a pang with that i totally get that but i think this is like cool then one day that'll be a, or first of all that exists you can read that comic that exists we should underline that that's still a, a great story for you to read and maybe there'll be a way that it could still somehow weirdly strangely connect probably not but maybe i don't know to be fully honest that's not the intention now this is inside the movies this is how that transpires but one day someone can make a cool that's outside of and like and then that movie's the cool movie and people like that story. like think of all the batmans think of now joker and that we can have lots of stories that we enjoy in all mediums doesn't all have to be under one canonized umbrella i understand a feeling of if this betrays something for someone but i think in large part it was too tantalizing it was too cool for this movie to be able to tell this story and connect it in this way to be fair, I'm surprised people are surprised by it these days. Right. Because look at the top of the screen, it says Alien versus Predator. If you like one, you generally like the other. And we've been experiencing this since 1991, uh, well, 92, 93, when Alien 3 came out, you know, and it took out three three loads of comics. So we should be used mm-hmm. to this by now. Something I think I actually completely forgot to write in the questions here was why the Comanche? So, you know, Predator is is versatile. You've already said, you know, you read some of the Dark Horse stuff. Dark Horse went to town on going all over the timelines. You know, we had the pirates, we had Victorian England, stuff like that. And, and you know, even, even to the point where people want Apocalypto. 
<laughs> you know, they want that kind of, of thing. So why Comanche? Why zone in on, on 1700s other than, you know, the pistol? <laughs> For me, it was before I came to the idea of Predator, the full story is I smitten with Mad Max Fury Road, very excited to make a movie that could be primarily where the story could be primarily told through action. So I was thinking of things like Gravity, 1917, Revenant, like survival tales that would lend itself to like, what if I'm just with one character and seeing them go through a gauntlet and come out and like, that could be, a you know, but really didn't want it to just be a visceral experience. Wanted to see, could that movie that's only told through action also be deeply emotional as well? So then thought like, oh, if I take the engine of a sports movie, of an underdog story, and put that in a genre movie, then maybe it could have some heart. And so we started to really focus around like a character proving themselves, and which then lent itself to Native American. And even more so, especially what you asked about Comanche, it's like the idea for me of like the story behind the making of a movie or the story behind the watching of the movie mirroring what's happening inside the movie itself, I thought would be make it even more powerful. So Native Americans, but Comanche in particular in cinema history are, you know, are often relegated to playing the sidekicks or the villains and never the heroes. And even more precisely, I'm noticing maybe I may, I may mention this at the at Comic Con, Adam. You may have heard me say this before, but at the Comic Con screening. But The Searchers is one of the most famous movies in cinema history. Certainly one of the most famous westerns. It's one of the most influential. It influenced Star Wars, and it has a rotten portrayal of Comanche. There's a shot in The Searchers that is probably the, one of the more indelible is the way the movie opens and closes where we're the silhouette of a doorway as we, the camera pushes through. And it's when we first meet John Wayne and then when he, when he exits at the end of the movie. And so we had a very specific riff on that shot to sort of reclaim it when Nadu sits out in the morning and we shoot, camera pushes through the teepee and you see her silhouette there. So we wanted to really interact with that history. And Comanche were the incredible warriors of the time. And also, they not every Native American tribe was as gender divided as Comanche were. I should say Comanche women were warriors. And despite what the other guest on your show said on your review, Comanche women were war chief. Not all the time, but there were instances of female war chiefs. But as roles broke down, not hunters, you know, or often not hunters. So that as examining all the tribes of the uh, of the period it felt like Comanche was the right one for this movie in so many different ways. So when you say not be hunters, but be warriors, are we sort of saying they know very well how to fight to fight like other people? Yeah, I mean, sort of. it's sort of an all hands on deck situation when the raid okay. happened or a raiding happened, everyone had to fight. As Jane, Jane, movie's producer, put it, who's Comanche herself, you know, it's like women did everything. Men hunted, women did everything else, which is very well articulated with babies strapped to the back and going off. They literally did, which is not much unlike some families today. But yeah, that, it's just sort of how things shook out. I'm sure there's lots of reasons that the movie doesn't want to examine and, and it's a tricky thing too because it's such an oral history going back to that time period so many books that i first leaned on before which is one of the reasons why we tracked down jane and and juanita and all you know advisors initially and then jane as a producer the written history is 1800s and uh the stuff we'd seen before and and some we haven't but we were going back to a time when there's not a lot written or depicted so we're left with the culture bears, you know, the people that have heard the stories and and really, frankly, use their creative instincts to fill in the gaps because there's not like there's references of them going on hunts and what that looks like and whatever. We only know what they say and how they might interpret what else would have gone down in daily life. 
And uh, in the scene where the feral predator leaves the predator spaceship, some fans noticed there seems to be an orange glow from inside of the craft. Was this a deliberate callback to Predator 2? And was there ever more planned for the spacecraft? There was never more planned for the spacecraft. I mean, that's just the interior lighting of the ship in our mind. I guess you're saying because Predator 2, the interior is so much more orangey than it is in another Predator. Every other film. So that was a deliberate call to Predator 2, to the Lost Tribes? We only have so many references for in ship interiors and where we wanted to draw on, you know, may have influenced that. But yeah. So one of the things I'm curious about is, well, is, is what you think, sorry, in terms of did you think about how much interaction that the fur trappers had with Feral? you know, before we're introduced to them in the movie. You know, uh, some people think that the red flash that distracts Naru was them fighting, you know, was them interacting. What are your thoughts on that? What What did you think while making the film on that, that relationship? Certainly they had some, they're, they're aware, they're looking for this thing that there was some interaction with. They obviously don't know how it works because their idea to trap it is not. So in my mind, they are bleeding Dakota. They are bleeding Tabe like Nadu does in the beginning where they have bait that's, you know, bloody pulp of a animal to draw the mountain lion in. And they just so happen to stumble upon a very good tactic of hiding underground where the heat vision would not actually see them. But so I think they've seen in this sense or heard from another group of trappers about this thing and what the red lights were doing in the distance in the mountain lion scene, I would, I would not comment on right now. Guys, guys, he's leaving open for tines. That's for tines. <laughs> what the hell would the French fur trappers have done with the predator if they caught him? What do you mean? They would have been like, "We look at this awesome thing. <laughs> Are they going to take you back to Europe to sell? Well, what, what's going on? Maybe they were going to do like a King Kong thing. Maybe they weren't even going to okay. kill it. Maybe they were going to like bring okay. it back on the ship. Guys, what could have happened <laughs> was the Adelini comic. You know, they could have brought it back <laughs> on the ship. It gets loose on the ship. They're attacked on the, you know, I, I don't know. So something I'm curious about as well is the Comanche dub. That is an awesome thing that you guys did for the film you know a lot of us leading up to it was like is he gonna do it in comanche is this gonna be gonna be subtitled and obviously it couldn't be but that we got the dub was awesome but did you direct the dub session for the adr so just just to say yeah the initial vision of the movie was for it to all be in comanche for the merger that's that's sort of what it was going to be so fox were called to yeah that there was sort of almost like it was assumed it was also written to the script but it was assumed so we we wrote it with the words with that in mind and then it just it couldn't you know it just just couldn't the way language worked in the movie went through several iterations. It, the first iteration, there was about 20 minutes of Comanche in the movie, or there's 20 minutes of the movie transpire, and then, you know, like, like basically the opening scene between her and her brother. Initially, that was, it was more than just her and her brother, it was her and some other guys. So, kind of Hunt for Red October. Yeah, it was Hunt for Red October without the gimmick. I just could not figure out the gimmick, and the gimmick felt like it did not have a place in the aesthetic of this movie. So, that's why it was confusing because I just hadn't cracked it. But it's Hunter October and it's the other McTiernan movie, 13th Warrior, also has, I mean, a few movies have it. Judgment in Nuremberg, I think is where Hunter October gets it. But anyway, but yeah, we, I kept on saying Hunter October, it just didn't make any sense. So yeah, so that, so, so we had done, we had shot scenes with multiple languages and it was very challenging. And then the dub happened, which is tremendous. And 
all the actors came back for it. I was there for some of it, but it was largely handled. I w- I started out there, and then the attempt was to just get them to mirror the great performances they gave in the movie. And I realized I, I don't need to really be here for this. But it was largely handled by Jane Catherine Briner, who's the head of the Comanche language department. This guy, Guy Narcomi, who's like one of the, the Comanche language speakers. And then the folks who handle dubs all the time. And they went through, even before I was involved, they went through a very careful process of finding and translating, finding the words. They don't just slap, like they try to make mouth match as close as possible, even though it's impossible to do it entirely. But there's a word for when your mouth closes, like MP, whatever. So they try and find those words to match. So that's a very extensive process. So that's why the dialogue changes in the dub. And some paying attention to a little bit of the commentary on that, I would say what it truly is. And I think Catherine's responded on Twitter to some people commenting that they're saying what would be authentic to the Comanche experience of something. So context as well. Yeah. So if there's not a Comanche word that means the way we feel that it means in English, for them, it's a Comanche word that makes sense to Comanche people. It's for Comanche people more than it is for American audiences to read the translation and see that it matches directly, not American, English-speaking audiences matching up. That was the reason for some of the dialogue being a little different than what it is in the movie. More so, but but in addition to that, also in finding the right words that do the mouth match, which is incredible. Anyway, the, that's a long answer too. I was there for some, but but frankly, many other more talented people in that regard. And our actors were so, it's like, I, you know, I was like, okay, you guys have the part that I'm useful for, you guys have. Um, I've already worked you guys through this, just doing it in a different yeah, language. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. And with those shorter pieces of Comanche that, that are in the film, it's been fun to kind of discover that. My friend Mike, who was with me at the premiere, he went to another screening in um, Santa Monica, which was the Comanche dub. Yeah. And something that got a laugh from the audience was the scene where Tabe and Naru are bound. The guy's head gets skewered with that pike and he's like, that's some crazy shit or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then another one is when he yells cheater. Like, I love that. When we initially see the movie, we don't, we don't know that. But as we watch the Comanche dub and see that, it's like, oh, that's that's cool to see so we got to laugh at the comanche screenings that we did was what the girls the girl at the end says yeah yeah he's holding some crazy shit you know and the um what was i gonna say cheater oh it's so funny when i watch the reaction videos of the movie online so many people in that moment are like he's cheating like so many people are they have no idea that tabe just yelled that exact thing but everyone has that feeling about the moment anyway it verbalizes how I feel about the Predator. I love the Predator, but he's a goddamn cheater. And when I saw that as well, I was like, this, yeah. It's bro. an interesting thing. I've gone back. I'll, I'll take both sides. If someone chooses to say he's got a code, I'll say, well, yeah, but sometimes, you know, and then if it's someone's a saying he's code. a cheater. Well, only because he's, in my mind, or it's, the Comanche are using all that they that their know-how has brought them to be able to use to defeat to hunt and defeat their adversaries just as a wolf if a wolf is going to eat a rabbit rabbit doesn't have sharp teeth wolf's not going to say well since you don't have sharp teeth i'm going to not use my no it has those things it's going to use them and we were hunting a wolf we're not going to say well you don't have weapons so i won't use weapons i'm going to people use all that they've what gives us advantage, what gives us why we are where we are, humans, is our ability to to make and hold weapons. So I don't end up predators' weapons are. And it does in its own mind, it's just using 
for me in the movie, he's using his version of what they have. So when they're using lances or spears, it's using its combi stick. Knives, it's got its gauntlets. And particularly in the, in the Comanche warrior battle, obviously not with other uh, animals. And bows and arrows, it finally uses its cross bolt, which for us was, we called it a cross bolt. And it was shooting little bolts. I know the interpretation was that it was like a spear gun. I think without context, size reference. Yeah, I think Alec had called it the bolt gun. It's just the spear gun's a point of reference for us fans. Because I know, it, I know. It appeared in expanded media, similar weapons to that. So it was cool to, yeah. to see that on screen that was so similar to those iterations. Yeah. Uh, we think it's accurate to say that one of the elements that's generated a lot of discussion was the Predator's redesign. Unlike the previous films where the Predator received more substantial redesigns, this new look didn't really feature into the narrative of the film. What made you want to significantly redesign it for this film? You've already kind of spoken to this a little bit, but elaborating, how was it collaborating with Studio ADI on this design process for this new Predator? Wait, dig into the, it doesn't feature into the narrative. So the first time we saw like a major redesign for the Predator was Predators. And that one, they had made the point in the movie that it was like a different subspecies, like the difference between a dog and a wolf. And then in the Predator, Shane Black's film, it was like they were hybridizing themselves. And that's why some of them like as ex- explained in the inside exactly. the narrative of the, yeah. the movie of why this thing. Yeah. 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 I mean, the pri- as I said, the primary reason was there's now so many movies where you can watch and see that Predator. I know some people love the jaw of one and the mandibles of the other and the scar and the one and you know like but they're they're all pretty similar and I just wanted this to feel like when that mask, I wanted the mask to feel crazy. So when the decloaks, you're going, holy shit, that's it. Just like we did in the original. And when that mask comes off, just like we did in the original, we go, holy shit, that's what it looks like. And I want to feel a little bit scarier, more creature-like. And also the design, you know, trying to accommodate for something that didn't feel as top heavy as I've always felt it had. Yeah, the collaboration with ADI was was awesome. In fairness, we started out developing first with Aaron Sims' company, Just Visuals, and then came to ADI to build the suit. But once we did, we like kind of threw out where we, we, the same. It was the same challenge of like let's change the look of it. But then with with Alec and Tom and and their crew, finally got to where we ended up, which was something that would feel much more creature like, less. It's a guy in a suit um, with a mesh, you know, 80s mesh, whatever, and allowed for the movements to be what it was. I think it was Jane's impulse was to give it this dew claw on its feet because we were going to have so much tree traversal, which was certainly something that was teased in the original and never really capitalized on. I will say uh, myself, Jeff, our cinematographer, and the whole previous team, we would spend every Friday playing the Predator Hunting Grounds. And all love the way it traversed. That was that became a reference point. So there's there's a moment in the end fight when Nadu's running towards her spear trap, and the predator's like leaping behind her, and then he he sticks his claw in the tree and then slides down before he kicks off. That's a move from Hunting Grounds. Oh, that's um, awesome. When the predators jump from you know there's a little miniature thing. I never even noticed when I was playing, and our VFX supervisor was like, "Oh, you can see he's like he's using the claw to like let himself slide onto the branches." But yeah, man, we just iterated and iterated and iterated and iterated until we finally found a design that felt new, but also undeniably Predator, you know, and and the masks kept designing and designing and designing and designing until it felt right to us. So it was amazing to be with them as a fan of theirs, even outside of Predator. I've watched making ofs, you know, I've saw that on Amopra with Jumanji, you know, growing like they were always figures of filmmaking. And so that on set, our little snake gag, Tom was there pumping 
I mean, Alec was there being one of the controllers of the Predator phase, but Tom did the snake thing. It was, I, think it was, I think we did that first before Predator stuff. And I was like, oh my God, this is Tom Woodruff. You know, like he's doing a practical effect. Like I'm amidst this right now. Like this is just so crazy. It was awesome. It was truly awesome. And it's great to be seeing more of the concept art through the design process coming out now. Like you had originally Kyle Brown, he did some Predator designs that I guess looked more traditionally like a Predator. And then Michael Vincent did the designs that are kind of a lot closer to the final look of the creature. But yeah, no, I'm I'm a big fan of those guys and and we're excited to, to talk to them a little more in depth on that soon. And all that stuff was so cool, you know, like I'm glad that people can see because there were their temptations like, oh, maybe we should, you know, it, it was it's hard to choose. But ultimately, I think, yes, we want to feel much more different because it's so easy to start to lean. People may not even realize that we changed it at all. If you're just making slight change, you guys would. But people that are resting on their memory of the creature, I don't know that if we made just tiny adjustments, they would totally feel the uniqueness and the freshness and this i just wanted to feel much more scary that's the thing with predator is that i think because we spent so much time with it as a creature and because it never really quite functioned in horror especially like the scarier moments of the original which i would argue maybe is the scariest one but the scariest moments of the original are when it's cloaked and when it's functioning like a slasher movie by the time that you see its mask come off you're in more action movie vernacular you know so the image of that face never is one that conjures fear. And so I, I, I was hoping that we could find something that could feel just a little bit more ferocious. Yeah. To that end, it's something that was pointed out recently on the boards. And it was the similarity between the bone mask and some of the artwork of things like um, Wendigos and stuff like that, you know, was, was that deliberate? Not for me. I have no, maybe the concept artists along the way were, oh, if I, this, that, and the other, but it certainly wasn't. Frankly, I always pushed that away because there were some impulses to adorn the predator with things. Oh, this is like the Native American. You know, I was like, I A, feel like there's a twinge of like appropriation for cool design. We use that, you know, that I wanted to move away from. And, but also like, no, it's like, it's not, when she's, they are that. And this is this other thing that we're up against. I, I didn't feel like it should be like, look how similar they are. You wanted it to be separate from the folklore. Yes. Not from like Moopeats or whatever that the Comanche may have thought of it, but really just from aesthetically from what Nadu represents and what she is and, and the, when the Predator feel different than that, not like the same. Okay. And it was also cool to see you and uh, one of the concept artists, Michael Vincent, spoke to this too, kind of giving some justifications for the difference in the look. Because again, this goes to like that balance between the hardcore fans and general viewers. Like a friend of mine who's not as into Predator, he was like, wow, that, that new Predator just looks so cool. But to see you talk about like, oh, maybe it's from a different part of the planet or Michael Vincent say like, go into real detail about his design process with why it looks different. It was cool to see. Totally. You know, the mask to me, it's not just, oh, cool, cool looking mask that someone drew developed mate it is more i think in more in keeping with the concept behind the predator than any other kind of man it's it, that it wears a trophy on its face yeah and the bioorganic of it all biomech of it all feels more predatory than other things that have been adorned on the Predator in previous movies. So, yeah. Yeah, it's something Aaron and I have wanted to see for a while because there have been some skull masks in the expanded media and even in the movie Predators, like that job right, right, Mr. Right. Black's mask. So to see kind of an extension or, you know, a further iteration of, of that was was awesome. One of the things, I keep saying that, one of the things, there are many goddamn things 
that I love in the film. And it was the way that you portrayed Feral's older technology, the stuttering of the cloak sometimes where it's not just instantaneous. It's blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There's one bit in particular that just I, I really nerded out over, and it was when Feral's looking at the cigar and mm. the camera pans around and you get the hexagonal pattern. But then as the camera moves, you get the skin textures. So it's not entirely invisible and you can see it at the right angle and stuff like that. And like the way that the cloak glowed when it was interacting with something, you mm-hmm. know, that was fucking brilliant. What was the creative process like taking it back, you know, realizing it older but still keeping it there? You know, did, did you explore a lot of different things to find that right balance? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. This is this was one of the longest baked things. We made a decision way too deep in the prop. We because we we kept on what if this? What if this? What if this? Because it needed to feel prior to what we had seen, but also aesthetically fun and cool for modern audience and modern me, you know, you know, thinking it rad. And you know, arrived in this place. One of the tantalizing things was to do a more of a What's the word for it? A stipple, dippled, what the original Predator cloak was. It was very tantalizing. As in the the multiple sort of outline. Yeah. And it's like a, um, you know, like a certain light, Fresnel, Fresnel lights have that radial lines. So that was interesting, but it's like, okay, but this is before that. And I know the hexagonal thing is, comes a lot from the last one. But it also feels like it's rougher, the honeycomb, we would you know, we'd call it, rougher. And we love the idea that it was like projected. It's not like I've done invisibility before um, and other things. And thought it was interesting that it's like there's some sort of techie thing. Well, that's why you see it. There's a translucence and you see its skin. Not only is that interesting looking and confusing, and but it's like it's projecting a layer of something that makes it invisible comes from its helmet in our mind. That's why you see it go down for the and then back up again, even though it's in steps. And when the arrow, when the Comanche arrow hits its gauntlet, you see it surge from the gauntlet to the helmet, which is why he can't cloak later in the movie because Nadu has taken its helmet. But love the idea that, that it was like raised. One of the cool things I thought from the 2018 movie was the ship cloak. We've seen lots of force fields and cloaks in movies, a little bit of a tangent, but like I just thought it was so great to like really see it and then see it's actually got a physicality to it. And like the suspense of it coming while he's standing there and then chopping the legs off and then it's like becomes a part of the set piece. I thought that was a really clever thing. It's sort of the way we use our shield. It's like not just, oh, it's not just cool that, it, oh, it's got an invisibility cloak and we, we have a shield. Like, no, we keep on using it. Let's see it use it all of its possible forms, all of its machinations. That That's I think, fun way to delve into science fiction. So anyway, the, the red came from, the, the blue felt a little too friendly and the red felt much harsher, like it works, like it's not working as well and also just feels more like the enemy. So uh, gnarlier. That took a long time to, to find that color of the right the right kind of red and all, all that stuff. So yeah, it was just, a, which we wanted to find a way to articulate something that's cool looking. I, I think I've said this before, but like Rogue One was a, was a real valuable reference point because we all kind of had a, our feeling towards the prequel visual effects. It's sort of more embraced that this is a newer movie. It didn't really embrace how it sits in time with the other movies. And I thought Rogue One did such a great job of feeling very much 70s Star Wars aesthetic, but rendered with modern sensibilities. So that's that's how we handled the cloak. 
Yeah, I've seen some fans have been wondering if that was a deliberate connection with the hex grid pattern from the last movie to this one. So you're saying on some level it, it was, right? In some level, just in, it's it's in keeping with modern renditions of Cloak, but certainly wanted this to feel a little less, works less good. Uh. It makes it feel like there's more components to it, though, doesn't it? Because there's more there, more visual. So with it taking more, it feels less advanced in that, in that way. Hopefully you understand a little bit better how it's articulated, that you don't just take for granted, like that it's just like, oh, visibility. Some visibility happens. So he has a cloak and it's invisible. You know, like, know that you can feel that there's a mechanic to it. The one thing I never, I haven't understood in in some of the criticism is that water doesn't affect it. Uh, That was the next question, actually. (laughs) Good. There we go. I'm working for you. I mean, the only time that water isn't affecting it or making it malfunction is when it lands in like this much water. But the bear fight is glitching like crazy. Yeah, it's 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 primarily just that one scene where he sees Naru's footprint. footprints. Yeah. yeah. But you can see her walking through that beforehand. She's barely in the water and he's much bigger. You know, I think he just hasn't quite touched it. Maybe we missed, maybe that's a, you know, we missed a surge, you know, but that's it. And it is, it is glitching a little bit in that scene as it, as it moves, as it interacts. Yeah, it's, it's the red, yeah, of, of it being. I would argue too, though, that it comes from, from the helmet, which I don't think did get wet. So in, in our, in our iteration of it. Well, that's how I just took it is that it was a different cloaking technology because I mean, it looks different. The energy color is different. So like this one, when the predator's interacting with some things, you see it glitching out a little bit when it touches things and when it fights the bear, which we right. thought was really cool, Aaron. Yeah. So just a different weakness. Like I, I never thought it was a, a problem personally. But in fairness to the criticism, it, we could have had a little bit more of a search in just that one scene. You're right in the one scene. It's it's funny because it's on a personal level, it's something that I always brought up when we were Adam and I have done some continuity law sort of guidance kind of stuff on uh. on certain things. And I was always the one that had to put in there, remember water affects the cloak. Right. And it never never bothered Adam as much. But that yeah, that that's that's kind of why we always think of that one. By the way, to this end, while we're speaking of what I find the criticisms that that the the CG face is one percent of the creature in prey you know it's it's really when the 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 mask is fired off and that one shot uh we have more cg involved in the face but there's no cg the entire end set piece is not a cg fit you know like it's all practical it's all the suit um there's no cgi's for the predator's eyes that comments you know wasn't sure what that was for doing unless it's just that one shot and I think it's quite gnarly and would have loved to include more of the practical suit for that shot, but it wasn't quite doing what we needed to do for that particular shot. But yeah, otherwise, it's all the guys, all ADI and, and cinematography and, and all the rest. So and it's been so cool to see a lot of the behind the scenes videos of the practical stuff and just the happenings on set. You know, something that was very distinctive between this and other recent Predator films is almost nothing was leaked from this movie. Like we had seen the Predator suits, Aaron, for the last one. And, and we'd read the script. <laughs> Good. <laughs> and everyone was doing their job. That's good. Yeah. yeah. You kept this one nailed down tight. It was only the, it was only the early stuff, to be fair. One of the distinct scenes in the movie is where the predator assaults the trappers in the burnt section of the forest. Was this something the trappers had recently burned to more easily scope out the predator? Yeah, it's interesting whether or not did they intentionally burn this to lure it there or did they stumble upon this and find this is the perfect spot for us. 
Yeah, I don't. I, I wonder. <laughs> <laughs> so open to interpretation. Time bait. Time bait. <laughs> this is something that really pissed me off about people. <laughs> <laughs> For some folk out there, there was an assumption that Prey being a streaming release equated to the days of straight to DVD, which is just blatantly not true. Not the case. I mean, there's rumours that the, the film cost like 60 million. You know, that put it on par with Predators. It put it on par with the first AVP. So from your perspective, from your experience, what was it like making this film for streaming? This is a entirely technical stuff from one of the film, um, one of the filmmakers on our boards. You know, he wanted to know if it impacted things like residuals for the cast and the crew. It was a theatrical movie when it was Fox. And then after the merger happened, when it came back around, we knew it was going to be streaming. I don't know if we understood the full extent of would there be any theatrical, whatever. But but it was a people knew it was for Hulu. So no actors signed on to a movie that it, it wasn't taken from that wasn't subverted or anyway. But it was also never thought of as a quote unquote for streaming. There was no like, well, people are looking on their TVs, so you don't shoot at this. There's no technical specifications that we had to adhere to, like I've done for TV, and we have to shoot certain aspect ratios and on like the boys or whatever, you know. So there was never any limitations up until the very end of the release of the formats we're mastering in and the sound specifications and things like that, where we had to do multiple versions, we had to do theatrical versions and for the screenings and you know HDR and then regular and SDR and all that stuff. But other than that, there was never a compromise. There was never at least in my circle and anyone that, of my influence that was like, well, this is for streaming. So you just approached it like Cloverfield. Yeah. And by the way, if I was making a movie that I don't know that I ever would think of it differently anyway. I don't, I, in the TV shows I've done, I haven't like gone, oh, well, it's for TV. So let's not shoot it good. You know what I mean? Like it, <laughs> That's not how we roll. I mean, we would joke often on set when then something was hard and we couldn't figure it out. We'd be like, well, people are going to look at this phone on their phones anyway. So let's just move, you know. But just merely as a joke, there were never really compromises made in that regard. In fact, it opened up an avenue to have our dub happen on the day of release of the movie. It wasn't like it's theatrical. And then many months later, you get to see it. You know, it was like on the day the movie comes out and you can watch it this way. So that was the coolest thing to come from the from the streaming release of it. And what would you say was the most complex scene to shoot during production? I think the singular most complicated thing was was the burnt glade. It had the most going on and was a giant set, gnarly to build. It was brutally hot in making it. And geography is so challenging because it's, you know, once you're in there, it's like, it's all tree, you know, it's like, how do we keep track of things? So the planning of it was, was intense. Was that on location or was that in the studio? It was like 95% location. We had to do a couple pickups on stage. I wanted to be on a stage. I was like, this will be so much easier. We can control I'm glad aesthetically that it wasn't. I think we gained a lot from being outside. The challenging thing was going to be the horse situation of how are we gonna, how would we do that on stage, though we could have found a way. But yeah, the brutal thing was day one of filming that, which was going to be, I guess, two weeks of shooting. In comes the fog and out goes the fog because the wind blows. And the whole concept, we, we pre-vised it with like beautiful dusk dawn lighting. And you can pre-vis, you can make the fog hang, you can make it do whatever you want. And it looked beautiful. And that was a huge part of, of the identity of the scene. And not to mention it decloaks because 
the ash is falling on the thing, you know, so it's like we need to have all these elements. It's it's a part of the visual identity of it and as, as much as it is driving some of the motivations of the characters. So it did not work. And we we struggled to get a few shots before lunch. And the only time I've ever, usually I'm a pretty like, we can roll with it, we'll figure it out. And I had like a mini freak out and I had all the department heads and, and our line producer. And I was like, so what do we do? Do we find something else to shoot as we rewrite the scene? Maybe we make it a night scene and maybe that's cool. We'll have, maybe we have actual live fires burning and that, and that's what lights it at night. And, you know, like, because this is not working. And my line producer pulled me aside and said, just before lunch, I think Rich, the AD, you know, found a a way to place all the fog machines in such a way that could work with the wind. And, you know, we got one shot was okay. So, you know, let's just take it one shot at a time. And came back from lunch and some of the best advice I ever got, you know, it's like one shot. You just need to get one shot at a time. And we did. And the scene is end up putting fog machines on the back of trucks and the trucks would just drive around and around the set. Sometimes they're in shots, we'd comp them out. Sometimes we'd do it right and they wouldn't be. But not to mention Dane on a harness and all the weapons and the crazy stunts and the gore. And it just had everything that you could throw at a scene. Thankfully, Suddy was not in that scene. So there was no dog to stress about. And then Amber and Dakota having one of the most intense conversations of the movie because of the fog machines making so much noise, they couldn't hear each other. It was all very, very, very difficult. Like most of the movie. I mean, the bear scene, I was just reminded, I forgot. We had to airlift. We needed camera on a crane and we needed people, safety harnesses on cranes and, and our sets had to be airlifted there. So camera gear was like dropped in by helicopter. And there was a whole gnarly thing where we couldn't disrupt the wildlife, the marine life in the in the river. So we couldn't, like we built the beaver dam, but it couldn't touch the river bed, the river floor. So it wouldn't disturb what's naturally growing there. It was a whole part of dealing with parks and wildlife services of Alberta. So we had like a tiny little portion of the beaver dam and it's suspended on wire. So it was just floating above. It was hovering above the thing. And then, you know, we CG'd in the rest of it. So there's just so many things like that because we're out in the wild, you know, scouting the movie to find that mesa top that she goes on. We were scouted in the winter. And so we had to snap on snowshoes and hike up a mountain and look at that and so many other locations covered in snow and then have to just guess this will probably look good when it melts and be you know what i mean like it's so challenging one of one of the biggest personal challenges for me was was that was like how do i decide on sending a 200 of us to shoot here one day without knowing what it really looks like you know um was really scary so big challenges so on, on sort of the flip side of that, and I'm going to assume it was probably the last scene, the Glade scene as well, but what was the most satisfying for you to see come together in the finished film? Was it the Glade scene because of the technical difficulties that went in there, or was there another one? That one certainly feels real good, I must say. But I, you know, there's just there's several little moments that I find deeply rewarding. One is in the bear scene, when we shot it, it was scripted as the wind changes. And so she notches her her arrow. And I think when we were getting in there to shoot it, everyone was like, is that really is going to make sense? Are we, you know, like, like maybe, maybe you're like, it's a rock that falls. So we changed it on the day and we turned it into something I can't remember. And we spent so much time in the edit trying to instigate that sequence and have it make sense. And it just did not make sense at all. 
And it was always a really weird, like, why is she on the side quest with the bear? And why is she deciding to shoot? What's, you know, like, because the motivation with the rock, she was already pulling the book before the rock felt like all these things that in the quick thinking in the moment of shooting, the redirect just, it made it so much more complicated. And then in trying to figure out, I returned to the initial idea, not even remembering that, oh, wait, that's how we scripted it. But was like, well, what if the wind changes? And she's smart to like premeditate. Oh, no, I'm going to be ahead of him. He's going to know I'm here. I need to prepare myself. Not only does it make her feel like a stronger character, but it also completely makes sense with the build of the set piece. And so on a pickup, we found a tree and we built a little bit of a rock with moss and the thing. And it's one shot where it pulls back and she looks like just that one little thing suddenly unlocked the whole, like now it all makes sense and it works. So that I find deeply rewarding. And it's also a little bit of a lesson of like, trust your instincts, you know? I doubted myself, like Nadu does in the middle of the movie. And and it was important that I realize sometimes you you do have a good idea. And not all the time, but sometimes. And yes, the burnt glade scene is is deeply rewarding to see come together, especially because it's so many different parts when you're shooting. And then when it, the fact that it all just does sort of meld is fantastic. My single favorite part of the movie is her war cry at the end. Anytime I'm watching the movie, back, like I get chills every single time. And it's been a million times that I've seen the movie. But that and her in the very end, she is Amber. You're not like, for me, it's like I'm not watching a performance. I'm I'm like, she is going through. That war cry is everything. And it is so deeply cathartic, I find. The way I talked about with Amber was for it to feel like Captain Phillips. Do you guys, I don't want to. It's been a while since I've seen it, but I've seen it. I haven't seen it yet, but go ahead. It's okay. Tom Hanks goes through an intense and and the audience goes through an intense experience in that movie and it's not until the end that he really unleashes his emotion and you realize in that moment oh yeah we haven't we've been holding our breath this whole time you know it's it's so cathartic and so emotional and and so that's what that moment is meant to be because the war cry initially was thought of as like just like come on come on do it do it you know like it's a taunt you know to him to to fire at her and then placing it afterwards instead i just thought it so much more emotional and then her being recognized as war chief what she's going through in that moment as a young Native American actress being involved in a moment like that, that comes at the end of this, you know, it just is a beautiful, beautiful thing that really gets me every time. So, so those are my, the highlights for me of, of the things that have come together in, in the special ways that they have. We had heard there were originally more scenes with the Comanche tribe with more focus on the war chief's health in particular, a scene of the feral predator arming up that you mentioned before. And we were curious if you could elaborate on any other scenes you ended up removing. Those are literally it. the first cut of this movie that the editor did before I had come home to start work. The editor's cut was 90-ish minutes. And then my director's cut that I showed the studio was 90-ish minutes. And the final film is 90-ish minutes. Like, no matter what we did, this movie just wanted to be... I mean, I attribute that largely to it being so action-based, so visual. Maybe there's one other scene. The scenes that were cut were stuff with War Chief and his wife discussing their son, who was Wasape, who's the bully. You know, we need a new war chief, and we don't know if there's good. And Wasape is not good. It's like stuffed about not her story, you know. And that's mainly it. And the scene where she came to was once again with war chief, as opposed to with her mother when she tells her that thing about it's about survival. So that was again, it's like oh, we're with characters that are not central to her emotionality. Um, we needed to change that up a little bit. And then there was one tiny little scene that was my favorite of the shoot. I thought it was going to be my favorite scene in the movie while we were shooting, um, which was. 
was she's overhearing what's in that what's happening in the TP with Warchief and his wife talking about we need a new Warchief and all that. And then there's a little girl who's trying to tie a, a bow together and can't. So she bends down to help her. It's the girl from the end of the movie. And the wind was crazy that day and her hair was it was so elemental. And the one nice little nugget was she tells the little girl when she's correcting her because she's doing it wrong. She's make sure you keep this clean, which was set up for her later when it's in the mud and she do- and Nadu doesn't keep it clean. So that's it. Those were the only tiny, tiny fifteen-second scenes that would not make an interesting DVD. You know, like <laughs> they're the thing that we always happens whenever we watch those, and we go, "Yeah, I know why this was cut." There are those, though, great, great, and and the actress who plays Stephanie, who plays the War Chief's wife, gave a trip like a really heartfelt, made us all cry. You know, a great performance. That's the sad. That's the one of the sad things that beat for her is not in the movie, but it just wasn't focused on Nadu. You know, yeah, and then and the weapons thing, as as we talked about earlier. So with you saying that that scene was for the kid was to echo, you know, her bow snapping. Yeah. Did the scene with Tarbe's story about the same thing come later to echo it back in again? Or was that not an intentional call forward to the... That was intentional. The story was intentional. Okay. But that that was a reshoot. That scene, they were right. saying different things to each other in the beginning. And then when we lost the girl, then we were like, okay, we got to put the setup earlier with Tabe Because, yeah. So you were conscious of. Yeah. That is one of the things I absolutely love about this film as well, because on a purely story-driven technical level, it is so good on that kind of thing. So, yes. Awesome. Thank you for saying. I'm glad that people get, to me, the, the girl, it was much more obvious, you know, like that was the benefit of it being in that scene. It's nice that it's in the very, I like the idea, oh, in the very beginning, he said, you know, but I also always fear like, are people clocking that? You know, I'm glad to hear that you did. That's great. I don't think there's really much you can say about this one, but for completion's sake, I've got to ask it. And it's, you know, in in the past, you spoke about wanting to keep the Predator connection secret, alluding to the fact that you were going to reveal it during marketing. What do you plan for that kind of thing? It was also part of the pitch, once again, to get them to want to make this movie whilst making the other, was that the first teaser would be her going off on a journey to prove herself. And then there'd be like a fire in the sky, you know, like the ship, like a ship coming down and that's it. And it would have no title or if it did, it would have a fake title would not be predator at all, but you would get, Oh, this awesome, interesting story of Comanche, but sci-fi. What the fuck is that? Already a cool premise, already a movie. And then later my pitch was when Shane's movie comes out attached to the opening day of that movie is the full trap. This teaser plays out as is, and then it keeps going into perhaps the bear scene. And it's with that that you reveal, oh, that movie you were already interested in, that's a Predator movie. And in a perfect world, you could not even have it in the trailer. And you just, the movie is the reveal. I wouldn't you gotta get the coverage for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was the initial pitch. And, you know, couldn't happen. But I, I'm kind of glad it didn't because <laughs> I like covering these films. I know. That would have been amazing if you guys like stuff were like, what if this is a Predator? Or like you just were guessed. What if you had guessed right? You know, that would have been exciting. I remember that kind of stuff when Cloverfield came out. Uh, well, the first trailers for the first, the first Cloverfield one? Oh, started. I, yeah. I am on record because I used to host a podcast and all that. You know, I'm on record for being one of the people that thought it was a Voltron movie. 
because <laughs> because everyone thought he said that someone's yelling it's a lion which was not <laughs> because it was attached to transformers so there was a like oh and it's paramount and they they own the right it was a whole thing but i was wrong it kind of reminded me of the recent blair witch movie because wasn't the first teaser for that it was like yeah. a different thing and i don't know if you've heard of this one there was there was a monster movie called primeval like a giant crocodile movie but the first they marketed it like it was a serial killer movie at first or something it's really weird oh that's so interesting is that greg mclean who directed that i can't remember it's been a while since i've seen it i feel like i was confused i vaguely remember this i don't know that i knew that that's was a specific choice thing but i remember thinking i did not understand what that movie was yeah that's interesting now i'm gonna go back and look at those trailers it's awesome Though the film didn't get a theatrical release, uh, you did get to travel to various screenings of the film and experience it in a theatrical setting to some very positive responses. People were chanting for you at the premiere of San Diego Comic-Con, like make one more. If I'm sure you remember that. That was like, I'll never <laughs> forget it, man. I'll never forget that. That was incredible. Yeah. But overall, just what was your experience like attending all these different screenings you had for, for the film? I mean, the Comic-Con one, I'm so glad you were there for that. That The Comic-Con was... I've never had a moment like that in my life of like being so terrified. And it, we knew people liked the movie and we had done screenings, friends and family, and, and internally at Disney. And the marketing folks finally said, oh, we love the movie, Dan. You know, like that all feels good. No test screenings? Just, just friends and family. There was no... We never did a recruited audience. You know, we just did friends and family. We did a screening in Oklahoma for Comanche with a rough cut just to include everyone's thoughts in the making of it, but never the traditional test screening that you hear of. On the one hand, people are saying, these are fans, so they're going to love it. On the other hand, you're like, these are fans, so they may hate it. And the degree in all of our friends and family screens, even when the film was further along and people liked the movie, there was never a reaction to beats and moments and the way everyone reacted from the beginning you know was like and that's carried through to every screening like there's that video of brendan fraser you know like if there was a camera on me i was fighting it so hard because you just you, you're held on the whole time you're held, and it's like to be validated like that was such a relief that you just like you know you just sort of let go like not who were crying, like Tom Hanks and Captain Phillips, you know, it just felt so incredible. I have no I, recollection of the Q&A afterwards, like the whole time. I was just like, I cannot believe. And I, I couldn't believe where people applauded and what people dug and like, like the way people dug into the movie. That's the thing. Also, I was so upset that the movie wasn't theatrical, you know, culturally for honoring the indigenous folks in the movie first and foremost and then it's like what any director would want like the best quality picture and even more so the best quality sound much more than picture what i had totally forgotten was because of covid and it had been so long since i'd seen a movie or a movie like this i guess even though i know i made it but it's like to be watching a movie where it's not just jump scares that people have together in a theater it's applauding for cool shit that is such, what a treasured experience to have that and it's different than having your friends over on the couch and you guys go isn't this awesome and when you're with strangers and there's this weird feeling like we're all like yeah one of my favorite movie memories was going to see the reflection of two memories i was deeply influenced by hong kong action movies and, and i saw hard john Woo's hard-boiled in my basement alone and my jaw was on the floor and i run upstairs and tell my parents like you won't believe this i just saw the craziest thing this guy sliding down a banister with two guns like it's like oh okay you know and you just feel like you just had this private nobody understands the greatness that i saw moment and then seeing Jackie Chan's first strike, Police Story 4, in a movie theater. And in the latter fight, there's a beat at the end of the fight. And I instigated, 
a standing ovation in the middle of a movie. And it just was like this, isn't this amazing? We all just saw this together. How cool is this? And that is a treasured part of the theatrical experience I had totally forgotten about. And the Comic-Con thing. And yeah, enchanting make one more. It was just so crazy. It was so cool. It was so cool because we we just been in the dark the whole time, you know? So it was great. Yeah, those were just awesome theatrical experiences. I know for you too, Aaron, with the gala screening in, in UK. We were really glad we got to see it in the theater. And hopefully, I don't know, like a Fathom Events thing in the future, maybe, hopefully. But it is interesting just the nature of films now and how all these big films are just coming to streaming platforms. But yeah, there is the theatrical experience. There won't be anything like it ever. So yeah, you guys get it more. Like That is such an American thing. I will say the the London screening was not quite like that. There was still some fun interact, you know, whatever. But yeah, there was some exclamations it wasn't like comic-con though and i got i freaked out and it's funny you say this aaron because i got a little like oh no and i know i knew i knew it'll never be like comic-con again in my life like it'll never play like that but everyone who's in charge of international press whatever she's like this is just how it is culturally in the uk this is how it is Mm -hmm. you know i'm glad to hear you corroborate that aaron because i've always (laughs) been like and i will say then beyond fest the premiere obviously it's uh, you know but beyond fest the reaction is very much mirrored and then when i even when i watched the reaction videos it's like oh yeah the beats do play a certain way in a good way in a positive ways so yeah london was a little bit funky and i was definitely a little depressed afterwards <laughs> but thank you aaron you just yeah so, so you know we're, we're, more, we're more reserved here <laughs> you, you got you got a few um you got a good few oh damn and yes right from me but yeah. i'm one uh. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> and i was sat next to you as well yeah. i i didn't hear don't worry it, it wasn't shouted out we're, we're very under oh yeah oh, damn yeah i had other people in front of uh, friends that i knew and i was distracted by seeing the back of their heads reacting to things you know so i but yeah again this is probably one you're not going to say much on but i've got to ask it because i get lynched if i don't and it's naturally a lot of us are wondering about the possibility of that home release you know i want it on that shelf behind me are you aware of any plans is it a likelihood i have no idea but i also it's hard to imagine that there wouldn't if there isn't precedent for a streaming thing to have physical media i wonder if there is i haven't looked into it but i know that the guy who runs 20th is is a hardcore fan just like you and i Steve. Yeah. Hardcore. And loves not just like hardcore fan for movies and all but like loves toys, loves merch. If it could happen, he he would he would try very hard to make it happen. I it's hard to imagine there could be like a box set that doesn't include yeah. that'd be really strange. So I I, th- I think there would be, but I literally have zero information on the matter. I haven't recorded a commentary yet. No, I haven't. But I'm just more optimistic that something like that would happen. I think it is more common with Hulu than it is with like Disney Plus stuff. Because I know there's no plans for any Marvel Star Wars ever, which I know their fans are frustrated with. But yeah, no, it would be cool to, to see a physical release. Speaking of leading into questions, the next question is on that same note. With the film being so well received, there's been a question as to if we'll be seeing any merchandise. One thing we have heard of is a NECA figure in the works. But are there any other plans you can speak to about that? I think I know that there are action figures in the works. And I've seen some bits. So more than NECA, maybe? I don't know more than NECA, but but maybe. Yeah, I can't say anything. I really hope to see a big Hot Toys of that feral predator. That would that would be awesome. Oh, and a vinyl of Sarah's score. Oh, that'd be great. Yeah. I still don't own the vinyl. There's an awesome Mondo a vinyl of Tinkler Lane, and I don't have it. 
<laughs> I need to, I need to get it. But yeah, I, I, that's got to be. I, there's got to be. Yeah, Sarah, what she did is exceptional. That score was fucking brilliant. Yeah. It really yeah. was. I agree. I agree. I really agree. I'll tell you guys the funny thing about that score was when we initially tempt the movie it was all like Sicario and very modern very droney because I didn't want to feel like music you typically hear when you're spending time with Native Americans and I didn't want it to be Predator in all fairness if it had been a while since we heard the Silvestri score, I probably would have. I was like, this would be cool to like bring it back. But everyone had continually done that. Every time. Yeah. So I was like, well, now that's not cool. <laughs> and I really wanted to feel like unexpected music with the aesthetic and the setting. So we that's why we leaned on Sicario, Joker, you know, all Hilder and Johan Johansson, that, that kind of score. And there's still some, you know, stuff in that zone in the movie. Um, but there was one part when she goes off on her journey and we had as temp there, one of my favorite scores of all time is James Newton Howard. It was Snow and the Huntsman, or I think it was Snow and the Huntsman. And it's this beautiful, sweeping fantasy. And it was so wrong in the uh, rough cuts that we would show because it's nothing like the rest. It's so hard temp music that's all over the place. It really affects the watch of the movie. But I was like, Oh my God, I've never thought I was going to be able to make a movie that could have a score like that. You know, like, are we doing this? Are we making a big, heartfelt epic? Did we do that? You know, I didn't realize that we had done it. And then Sarah got her hands on it and was able to find a way to have the music accomplish what all the more modern kind of stuff does and then go big and sweeping and not feel too overly sentimental and overly cheesy and just be really rooting and winning and deeply emotional and epic. She just found a way to merit all those tones and be scored that I'd love to, li- not just score that's effective. A lot of those kinds of scores are really effective in a movie, but not one that I would listen to as a fan of movie scores. You know, what Sarah wrote, every track is like, and then the Predator thing was the big deal because of what I mentioned with, with the temp was how we used the Sylvester score and was like, if there's any way, Sarah, like just basically challenged her, like, can you find a way to do your thing? with the Sylvester music so that when we cut to the Predator, we hear the you know, and so we know like, oh, Predator movie is coming for us. Uh, frankly, I thought it was much more, I, I'm surprised that... <sighs> yeah, we mi- we both missed it at yeah. first, but then when we listened to it on its Honestly, own. that's, you know, some of that's the mix. I think in some of the, the premiere had a better, I think it was 5-1, like the 7-1's better and the and the home is better, you know, so now, and but yeah, it's undeniable when you listen to it as a yeah. as a track on the on the album. Even then, it kind of had to be pointed out to me because it was the tempo is a lot slower. Right. So, you know, when going back to the London thing, because I'd sort of noticed you, but I wasn't sure if it was you, <laughs> I'm going to stay to the end until I can get a good look at him right. and go talk to him if it's him. Right. And as I'm sat there waiting, you know, you were talking to some guys yeah. and I'm sat there watching the credits and it, and it gets to the music stuff. Predator theme by Alan Sylvester. Vestry. When the hell was that in it? Yeah, and then when it's pointed out, I can't not hear it now, right. and I think it's brilliant. I just think she disguises it so well in there, yeah. but it's so damn obvious once you know what it is, and just the way it builds into that horror sort of vibe of the music for the Predator yeah. in the film. You know, I was like, this is one of the best use of Sylvester's motifs and, and, and melody. I agree, man. I'm, I love it. I love it. There's another Easter egg. I, I wondered if you guys... I, I expected of anyone to get it. I never wanted to mention it at all. Uh, I was hoping that you guys would pick up on it. Maybe you have. It's not sonically, not musically, but Dakota... Tabe is cut across his chest. Oh, with Billy? That was a callback to, yeah. to Billy? Yeah. I cannot tell you 
working with the special effects, you know, it was like, they were like, okay, so we're putting the scar. I'm like, as you don't understand, it has to be as a start here and go down. Like, it, like oh yeah, no, it's that. No, 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 no. It's gotta be like exactly this thing, any other nuance. And it won't feel like it's specific to that cut. You see, that's the kind of Easter eggs we like. Yeah. Yeah, we did yeah. notice that one. Good. Okay, cool. But yeah, when I first heard that Sarah was going to be on the uh, the project, I was familiar with her work just through uh, playing through Assassin's Creed Origins and Modern Warfare 2019. I loved her scores for those. So yeah. when I first heard she was on this, I was like, oh, this that is was me. Great. That was my. We were prepping the movie. I was. I had my PC with me, and I was playing in Assassin's Creed Valhalla. I had play. I loved Origins, but I was playing Valhalla at the time. I'd played Origins Odyssey. You know, and I was playing Valhalla. And I was like, this is beautiful music. What is that? You know, and just like what we needed, like did not feel tro. Opie, Viking, but was beautiful. Felt like it transcended the kind of music you would expect to hear, and but felt historically appropriate. Like it, all, it just had everything. And I was very inclined to hire female everywhere we could. And so to see Sarah Shackner's name, as you know, I was like, who is this? We must find her. And then I saw everything else. She, I, Anthem, her score for Anthem, even though that game is, you know. Yeah. tricky for people but she did that very interesting thing with vocal modulization like that i love not only did she do something that, that felt very orchestral um that also weird synthy stuff like it just felt like the perfect person for the movie yeah her performance for anthem at the game awards was yep. another one like i really noticed like wow what is yeah. this yeah totally And on the note again of the Make One More chant from the Comic-Con screening, many fans are wondering if you have interest in returning to direct another Predator film, whether that might be a sequel detailing how Greyback gets the flintlock or taking the Predator to a different period in time. I think I would be interested to do something that functioned like this movie, where it's A, it's just a very unexpected, a really unique way in, and primarily a movie, and on top of that, a great Predator movie. That's something I would be interested in making. And I do think there's there, there are things that we have not seen that are worthy, you know, being a movie. Uh, of all the movies that have been made, there, there's some that haven't, you know, so that would be cool. But, you know, we shall see. And sort of on that vein as well, you know, we've seen pictures of you on the set of Prey, sporting the hat of the enemy, wearing the Wayman Yutani hat. Yeah. So I'm assuming you're an alien fan. I mean, who the fuck isn't an alien fan? Wrong people, that's who. <laughs> so would you have any interest in Alien or better yet, Alien versus Predator? For many fans, the AVP movies we got weren't the ones they wanted and there's this desire that it can still be done right. Are you going to course correct AVP like you course correct a Predator? It's so interesting that it's not just Alien and Predator, it's Terminator. I'm surprised you guys don't also cover Terminator because those three movies are so linked. They so represent, I mean, they came out in a certain proximity to each other, but mm-hmm. I guess because they were a similar kind of mashup of science fiction and horror. But there's something about McTiernan and James Cameron that feels cut from the same cloth of both being interested in like paramilitary authenticity, but also with big imagination. And, you know, all three of those to me just share a fascinating DNA. I don't know that there's movies today that are like so different from different filmmakers. It's not the same people that made them, but yet they feel so linked. So you want to do Alien versus Predator versus Terminator? Is that what you're I love us? Alien. I love Terminator. I love Predator. I'm not trying to say something about Terminator. I'm just like think. I just when you you got you guys are like asking me, Alien, but it's like oh, but there really are. It's, I always found a fact. We talk about it on set like yeah, Terminator. Also, like there, there's something about these three movies that really feel like they're cut from the same cloth. 
But you know, yeah, I love Alien. I don't, you could ask me about any for anything. Um, my answer would be the same. You know, if I had an awesome idea, and maybe I do, maybe I don't. <laughs> but but if I had an awesome an idea that I thought that could be, I'll tell you that the thing that that really speaking of Terminator, it occurred to me when we were getting close to the release of this movie, I was really excited for my mom to see it, and which is crazy when you think about what's in this movie, <laughs> and she loved it. And I was reminded when I was a kid how excited I was for my mom to see T2. Was not excited to show my mom Terminator, but T2 I wanted her to see. Because T2 is thematic, about something, incredibly emotional, and has great set pieces. It's sort of, it's got it all. Um, And that's now a thing I can't really let go of. Is like, that's what I'm after, you know, is like, especially after having made this and letting it be to some, not to everyone, but to some, a beautiful movie, a beautiful experience that also is insane and gnarly and vicious. And I think you can do both. So those are the things I'm looking for is how can I make a movie function, continue to make movies that function that way. And there's certainly room inside so many franchises, IP, pre-existing characters that could allow themselves to to have stories like that. Would you have counted Aliens as a um, show your mom movie? It's funny. Technically, I mean, it's all about motherhood. Alien, no. But Aliens, maybe it's a little long for her, maybe, I guess. (laughs) I do like it as a benchmark, though. Is this a movie we'll show Dan's mom? That's like become my internal and, and aliens would have fit that bet. Like I would have been proud if I had made it to show my mom because I think it it's so articulate about very human stuff. I missed all of the terror. I think that would have scared the shit out of her. Actually, that would have been the one flaw. Like this, I don't think Prey is scary in that way. You know, but it definitely leans more into the horror. I think of Predator paired to the other relatives of the, the, the franchise. But only because I've always viewed Predator as more of an action thing. And this certainly dips its toe into in the boat. We definitely tried to make it. I think someone, and this is not me saying, there still could be a great, more horror-oriented Predator film. Mm. I, in the, even this one, though it dips its toe and wanted to be scarier than, than many of the others, um, still, I think, is much more action-based. So that's everything from Adam and I. But we do have uh, questions from members of the AVP Galaxy community because we do always love to give them the chance. So this is from one of our members called Cradan. As we've talked about, you know, when Prey was pitched, the Predator was in production. It's not very well received, let's be honest. And Cradan's wondering, was there ever a point where it looked like that negative reaction to the Predator was going to impact Prey? Well, that is what happened. The timing is lines up with the, when the merger happened. You know, it's it all just sort of made them put pause and then see post-merger. What The one thing I knew, I think it's also why I didn't give up hope and why I didn't just say, oh, maybe we'll become another character and all that. In addition to the other things I said earlier, it's not like they're not going to never make a Predator movie again. And the movie that you make when Shane's... The script for, for Shane's movie was very kitchen sink. was very like, let's do... Let's go crazy. As you get, you know, the speaking Predators and the smoking and, you know, which I unfortunately, I, I feel like that if you're going to do it, you do that, you know? And then it's going to be divisive no matter what. They ended up with something divisive anyway. Like, at least be crazy. Because I think now, especially today, you know, we embrace those things. We embrace those bold swings. Um, but so what? But I knew that in success... They're going to want to make more cool for us. But even if it didn't succeed, the movie that you make when the last one was Let's Just Go Crazy is a more pure back to what the original intended, you know, that kind of thing. So I knew I felt strongly at some point when they decide again that we had a real possibility. And, you know, the the Spider-Man movie, you know, the gap between when you make a movie that didn't quite work and when you can just restart again or whatever has been shrinking our whole lives. So I remained optimistic. 
And Darkseed asks how it feels to make a movie in a franchise with passionate fans while trying to show something new. Does the fan base scare away fresh ideas you would like to bring to the table? Obviously not, because uh, Aaron <laughs> Aaron should have scared me away. But I can recognize that, like, I'm a diehard fan. You know, you guys are a fan. We're all fans in different ways, and everyone on your form, all fans in different ways, and everyone can, you know. And there's group think around some things. And I know I've heard you guys have different feelings on Predators versus Predator Two, and which one's the stronger of between the two of them. And so I'm a fan, so I trusted my own instinct and the people that I was working with who are fans and and not fans. And and also cool is cool is cool. You know, no matter what, if something's good, and usually if it's more narratively oriented, if there's like a reason for a thing that can be quite winning. Um, so I knew if we were basing our decisions um, on character stuff, we'd be better better off for it. So, you know, couldn't, can't win them all, but that's okay. You know, I guess I've also been on the internet for a very long time in terms of making things for the internet, having started with podcasting and all that stuff. So I'm quite able to objectively look at negative feedback and positive feedback and recognize that there's no, that none of it is fact. And that if there's an opinion to be had, it will be, <laughs> yeah. you know, no matter what. And I assume that every i assume the worst and the best of all assume assume the worst and hope for the best from anything so yeah so i i did feel the pressure but in a normal human way i d- i certainly didn't let let myself drown in that and you had kind of worked in fan spaces before with some of your shorts like for warframe and for for portal yeah so yeah having the having those yeah warframe we all of it was like we're changing this about it we're doing this instead you know like how are people going to feel and most of it, the impulse is, I think we can make this even cooler. I think we can really dig into the promise of the premise of, of it. So Predator, the premise being it's this alien creature that has come. Why not make it feel even more alien, more creature? And with a code of a, why don't even make it feel like it's got more of a code? Like, like the man, you know, it's wearing its trophy on it. It's a trophy hunter. It's wearing, you know, like dig in more to the premise of it. It was the safety net of it for me. So I feel like this one might we might have already covered, but I'm just going to ask it in case you do have a different answer to the um, above. So Adolfo Romero would like, I'm terrible with names. Would like to know which moment from the film is the most significant to you personally. The war cries, a little bit of that. I mean, frankly, you know, her saying, why do you hunt? Because everyone says I can is definitely a deeply personal thing for me, wrong or right, to feel that which the movie investigates, you know, whether that's the right reason to do something. But I can trace everything I've ever done back to the person who said it would be bad. And it's like, you tell me that. And I'm like, well, now I have to make this. And I'm making it for an audience of one, you know, for that person. Back to you know, even in high school, like uh, an assignment and a teacher said, oh, I don't think, you know, it's like, I'm going to show you this, you know, like that's a very human thing, I think. And sometimes it's great to use that negativity to fuel fires of positivity, you know, and sometimes it's, you're doing it for the wrong reason. So that to me was very important. And, and the thing with the flower and the raising the mom's met, you know, that's me and my feelings towards my parents and, and growing up and maturing and all those things. So there's a there's a lot of me. Like I said, I I relate to Nadu far more than many movie characters, but in particular, anyone in the Predator franchise and most particular Arnold. You know, Arnold represents in the best way wish fulfillment, you know, which we need that too in movies. And we we have that <laughs> times a million in Predator, you know. And I think Nadu is 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 the construction of her is is one that's very linked to, to me. And Aaron Woodward wants to know, in your opinion, what is it about the Predator that makes it such an enduring and classic Hollywood monster? I think two things. One is the obvious. It's just a friggin' great design. And, you know, we have so many of those things in 
pop culture and the predator is one of them i when when i was announcing the movie i got messaged on instagram from like a father daughter who dressed up as predator and, the, and the, i think the father was like writing on behalf of the daughter and, the, and she said i'm so excited for your movie the predator is my favorite character i'm not allowed to see it but it's my favorite character which that says it all right it's the desi- that creature just w- is a cool looking thing and on top of that, I think it's unique in it being the idea of a sentient, intelligent being that is also a creature. It's usually one or the other, right? We're usually seeing a xenomorph is just a ferocious, it's animalistic, it's an animal, you know? Or you're seeing like Close Encounters, and it's like, oh, these are intel- not, not exactly Close Encounters, but a different kind of alien, you know? And Predator is sort of a combination of those two concepts that aren't often put together. Yeah, and it, it's unique in that if you look at it, especially when it came out, we're seeing it function like a slasher movie and all the other slashers don't have the code, you know? So there's almost something where you could be on Team Pre. You could see it being a good guy at some point. Um, and in our movie, it is first scene uh, against the Fur Trappers. And as a kid, you're like, okay, it's not going to kill me. When, you, when you're watching horror movies and you just think of like, how would I survive this movie? Like the Predator gives you an out. So I, I think for all those reasons, it's why, why it's endured so much but certainly the aesthetics are the the primary reason which i fucked with sorry (laughs) damn you done (laughs) so this is one we got a lot of people asking about and it was something that caused some discussion after the film's release so many fans are asking in various ways how you feel about a film where the predator wins Mm, it's a great question (laughs) keeping that one to yourself then huh okay I personally feel like there's a lot of um, that's an avenue for things like animated shorts or uh, short films or experimental things to play with. So, uh, Steve, if if you're listening, come on, give us some shorts, give us give us something like that. And that's actually everything. But before we let you eat some orange tootsie and escape the predator, uh, <laughs> is there anything you'd like to say? Any anecdote or thought that we just haven't given you the opportunity to express with our questions? I don't think so. I, this has been incredibly thorough and I appreciate the opportunity to be so thorough with you guys in particular is great. And no, man, I'm just, I'm so glad. I'm so glad that you guys dug the movie and I'm particularly heartened to see your fair-minded coverage of it, even in the anticipation of it. You're right to be very cautious in your optimism of it, but I also do appreciate the optimism before, you know, the movie came out and not being a platform for the small, but sometimes vocal ugliness surrounding all kinds of genre movies that don't star um, Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, people that, people that look exactly like him, you know? I got to say, Dan, I appreciate that because that is entirely the kind of environment and the platform that I personally try and maintain and foster. I have very little time or patience for that kind of behavior. And for you to see that is very, thank you. You're well, yeah, I mean, thank definitely. you. Thank you. So yeah, this has been been awesome. I'm so thank you guys for coming to the theater to see it, not to make all your listeners uh, <laughs> uh, jealous of that. But hopefully there, will, hopefully you guys are right. Hopefully there will be there will be more theatrical experiences to be had for everyone. And yeah, thank you for the for the support and the coverage and all that. And I'm excited to see what else you guys have in store. Do you want people to bother you on Twitter? Do you want to shout out any handles? Sure, I'm Danny TRS on on and on Twitter and on uh, Instagram. You can bother me. Go give him some love. Yeah. So this has been Aaron. And Adam. And this is Dan. We are not sticking around. (laughs) I love it.